you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them up to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6. Does anybody at all remember what series we were in? James. Who said James? That's just sad. You know why more people don't go into full-time ministry? Because it seems like such a meaningless job. No, I'm just kidding. All right, Matthew chapter 6. It's good to be back. You know what? I just turned to James. That was like a Freudian. I did. I cannot believe you made me do that. All right. Have you ever really wondered why we say amen after we pray? I mean, really, have you ever wondered that? A father said amen after grace one evening, after they ate, or right before they ate. His children asked him what amen meant. Before either he or his wife could answer, their five-year-old son responded, it means send. I mean, is that really what amen means? Is that we compose the body of our prayer and then we click on the send button to get it to God? Is that, is that really why we say amen? You know, it's in the New Testament 28 times in English. But the Greek word is found 152 times. So it's important, it's significant, it's meaningful, but how many of us really, really know why? Well, this morning we're coming to a section of this prayer that honestly cannot be found in most of your translations, unless you look down at the footnotes section. Why is that? This doxology doesn't appear in any of the oldest manuscripts. But friends, the Jews had a custom of ending all their prayers with a brief doxology. So it seems as if the early church, the early Jewish Christians in Syria, and their habit of reciting this prayer added this doxology, which made its way into the early church's tradition and eventually into the writings. That's why most of our Bibles, most of our modern translations do not include it as part of the inspired and errant word of God. However, there is nothing unbiblical or inaccurate about this doxology. In fact, every statement of this doxology is included and reinforced in Scripture. Hey, take a look at this and you'll see what I mean. First Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth. And in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. David prayed that prayer. So while we do not hold this doxology as part of the inspired word of God, it beautifully describes, friends, listen, it beautifully describes the heart's response that ought to be there when praying through these truths. And for that reason, we will look at the significance of this doxology, and here's what it says. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What do we learn? What can we see in that brief sentence? Number one, we praise God. Why? Because number one, the, the kingdom belongs to him. 
What is the kingdom? In short, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is simply this. You ready? It's the reign of God. We belong to the kingdom of God in Christ and the kingdom of God lives in us. Now listen, because we belong to God, the king, our wills must reflect this. Our wills must reflect that he is our king. You know what that means? It means that the money that's in your bank account is not yours to feel a sense of entitlement about, to do whatever you want to do with it without, ex- without asking God. It means your home is not really the bank's. There's a king that even presides over your bank. Unless you bank it sovereign. <laughs> you know, you, you don't preach for a while. These things just come out. I don't know why. God even owns your home. God owns your body. Your body's not even yours to put into it whatever you feel like putting in. It must honor Him. That's what it means to belong to God, the king who presides over the kingdom. Our wills must reflect this. So, friends, listen, this doxology is a praise that God reigns over us and that we are utterly dependent on him. You see, we want to see him reign. The people of God want to praise our king because his is the kingdom and we live within it. God's kingdom, by the way, is one of love. It's one of peace, unity, and beauty. We have nothing to fear, the people of God. For our king is the sovereign, uncontested ruler. He loves and he cares for his people. He's in control of all things. And we will answer to him one day for our lives. Isn't that truth especially needed now in these uncertain times? How's your 401? How's your, is your house worth less than what you owe? Is your company downsizing? There is one who is always in control and his sovereign rule always carries out what is best in our lives, no matter what it seems at the moment. He's our great king and it is his kingdom in which we live. You know, if you, did you walk by these windows this morning? Did you drive by them? Because if you happen to look up at those stained glass windows, you might have noticed that from the outside, listen, the colors are muted. You ever noticed that? The pictures and the images are slightly indistinct. But if you come inside and you look, and I invite you to do that right now, you look at these windows from inside the sanctuary, and all of a sudden, the vibrancy of the colors, they stand out, they pop out, and the story of the gospel is communicated clearly. Friends, this is similar with the kingdom of God. Its full mystery, its full beauty can only be seen from inside. If you can't see the kingdom of God, if your heart doesn't soar with praise because he sits on the throne and we don't, then friends, you might be on the wrong side of the glass. The children of God can see 
God's kingdom. And only they can be filled with praise and declare yours is the kingdom. But there's a lot more in this doxology. It's not that we just praise God because His is the kingdom. It's that, but there's more. We praise God because all power belongs to Him. Can I tell you something about ancient grammar? Now, I know you're excited about ancient grammar. But the phrase kingdom and the power is called the hendiadus. Can you all say that? Hendiadus? Some of you didn't even try. <laughs> Jamie? Jamie, would you say hendiadus for us? <laughs> now, I know this is life-changing knowledge, okay? I know you're going to walk out of here going, I know what a hendiadus. But an, a hendiadus occurs when two words form a single thought. You ready? In our con- today, football day, you might say the phrase, try and win. That's a hendiadus in modern language. You try and you hope to win. They together form the thought of victorious effort. You see, kingdom and power together form the thought of omnipotent control. Let me explain it. You see, they can't function independently of one another. You ever seen a king? Or can you picture God as a king without power? If he did not have the power, he'd simply be a powerless king. Our king has all power to rule and to carry out his desires. I love the Greek word power. In fact, I love it so much I wanted to paint it on my motorcycle, which happens to be an 1800cc Honda VTX Cruiser. Here's the Greek word. It's dunamis. The Greek word is dunamis. This word explodes almost literally, friends, because it's where we get our word dynamite. Jesus told the early church that they, quote, will receive dunamis power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Listen, the Son of Man is going to return, the Bible says, quote, in a cloud with dunamis power and great glory. You see, God holds all might. Nothing can thwart God's will. And that power enables him to rule and to care for his children according to his desire. So friends, listen, listen, people of God, how bold, how confident can be your prayers when you know that the king of all creation holds all power to exercise his will and his will is always for the good of his people. We come before the sovereign king of all creation and we make requests of the one who holds all power. But the doxology continues. It's not that we just praise God because the kingdom is his. It's not just because the power belongs to him. But we praise God because all glory belongs to him. It says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. See, our sovereign king cannot do anything. Listen to this. He can't do anything but that which will lead us to see his glory. But what is his glory? 
That's another word we use all the time. But few people really know what it means. Did you know in the Old Testament, the word glory comes from a root that means heavy or weighty? In other words, if a person was very, example, very wealthy, then they carried a weighty influence. If you had a high authority, then you were heavy in your ability to influence other people. When used of God, the word glory was closely linked. And you got to hear this. This is going to make sense because I'm going to bring it into the New Testament in a minute. The word glory was linked with what he did, his acts of splendor, his acts of holiness and love. They revealed who he was. See, God did in order to reveal who he was. And that brought glory to him. We see this in the Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. All creation that God spun into place with his word declares back the glory of God. But the Old Testament, listen, consistently links God's glory with his presence among his people. See that in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. This This was the proclamation announcement from the angels that God, the son Jesus, had come to earth and was born and was to dwell among us. Now that's the Old Testament, you ready? The Greeks had their own definition of glory. And it sounds a lot like... America. See, one achieved glory when one acquired fame through great exploits. So if you're number one in Pennsylvania in wrestling, then you've achieved glory in America, glory in the world because of what you were able to do. Now you have fame. To the Greeks, glory came when others thought highly of them because of great acts that they were able to do. But you see, the New Testament completely transformed the Greek meaning of glory. And listen, the way it did it was by bringing the Old Testament concept of glory into the new. And here's what it is. It's God's majesty coming through his self-revelation. In other words, it's this. God's glory is seen when he displays himself in our universe, and nowhere is that display seen more clearly than in Jesus Christ. Here's what it says, John chapter 1, And the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. That's what glory does. It's seen when He's among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So are you seeing the progression of praise in this doxology? The King rules His kingdom with absolute power. And his actions in the universe, in this creation, reveals who he is, and it brings him glory forever. Amen. Yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. Now, here is my important question. You ready? Here's what we're going to finish the rest of this sermon answering. How do we give God 
glory. And I'm going to give you three ways. First, we give God glory when we recognize His presence and praise Him for the qualities His acts revealed. Now let me explain that. When God makes His ways known and He is among us and He's working in our lives, our praise doesn't go just ultimately, God, thank you for doing this in our lives. It's God, thank you for doing this because it reveals that this is who you are. And so when our praise connects itself to who God is, we bring Him glory. It's not enough. It's not glorifying enough to say thank you for the food we have before us. Because the food that you have before you comes from the king of all creation who has the power and the love to give you what you need so that you would experience his faithfulness. So God, thank you for this food because it represents your faithful, unchangeable, loving fatherhood to me. And friends, that is glory to God. The 24 elders in Revelation 4 cast their crowns before God's throne and they said, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created. He's the creator. You created all things and by your will, he's the king. They existed and were created. That's how you bring glory to God. So friends, let me ask, what is God doing in your lives? How are you seeing his presence in your life? And how is that the actions of God revealing his character? And when it reveals his character, you praise him for who he is and you're bringing glory to God. There's another way we glorify God. And it's so important because it's when our lives display his qualities When our lives display who He is, we bring glory to God. How clearly can you see this in anywhere else but John 15, 8? By this, my Father is glorified. How? When? Well, that you bear much fruit. That you bear out the qualities of God Himself. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control. When you bear out what the Spirit of God is birthing in you, you're bringing glory to God. So friends, how were you this week? Were you gentle with your spouse? Did you trust God when things seemed to fall apart? Did you love those who are in need? Did you show mercy, the effort to take away the suffering that people experience? Did your words build up and edify one another or did it grieve the Spirit of God? You see, when, we, when our lives display the qualities of who God is, we bring glory to God. We don't need to tack on now glory be to God for everything we say. It's the way we live that brings Him glory. Do you want your life 
to glorify God, then ask Him to help you live like He does. But there's a third way, and it'll encompass the remainder of our time together this morning in this sermon. There's a third way, and I'm going to explain it to you because it's going to seem puzzling, but I think it's going to make sense. That third way is we give God glory when we learn to live the amen. What do I mean? See, giving God glory means acknowledging and singing the praises of what is already a reality. Now listen, already a reality? What do I mean by that? What's that have to do with glorifying God? Friends, this is exactly what the amen in this doxology does. Let me explain it. In Judaism, amen was used in response to praises, blessings, vows, and prayers. And when prayers would end with amen, the Jews signified by the use of that word their hope in its fulfillment. When they said amen, they were putting their hope that there will be a fulfillment for the words I just prayed. Similarly, in the Old Testament, amen meant so be it. It meant that there was a certainty that the words I uttered would, in God's will, in God's time, be fulfilled. There was a certainty of a future fulfillment. But friends, this changed when it came into the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, the word amen means not so be it, but it is so. And it carries with it an affirmation that my prayers have already been heard by God and the promises for their fulfillment were already secured. You see, where amen used to signify that it would be so, it came to mean in the New Testament that it is so. Why is this significant? Well, the key is found in Revelation 3.14 where it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, that's a title for Christ, it, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The amen is Jesus. He is the faithful and true witness. What's a witness? A witness is one whose testimony and word is completely reliable, accurate. It can be brought into legal proceedings. So the promises, friends, listen, the promises of God are embodied and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. By ending their praise of God with amen, the Old Testament saints expressed their certainty that God would be faithful to them and He would send to them a deliverer by us using amen at the end of our prayers. We are affirming that God has been faithful and He has sent that deliverer to us and He will continue to be faithful. See, our men... Our amen is no longer so be it as much as it is so. This fact, this word, amen, it's the very last and final word in all of scriptures. Amen, the Bible says. It is so. Friends, do you understand the ramifications of this? What this means is that we pray. We live the amen knowing 
that all of the promises of God have been met and have been signed, sealed, and delivered in Jesus Christ. We don't pray as the people of God wondering if the king of all creation will answer our prayers. It is so. To live the amen is to live with the certainty that Christ has guaranteed by his own blood the promises to be found in Scripture. So from what will the children of God fear? What world changes can make the children of God tremble? For it is indeed true that the kingdom and the power and the glory are forever God's. Friends, listen. When you read the news and it creates anxiety, listen, remember the amen of the Lord's prayer. When bad news reaches your ears, remember the amen who has guaranteed the promises of God. When you are discouraged, turn your thoughts to the amen that has declared that the kingdom of God is overpowering the kingdom of this world, regardless of the political or economic landscape. Live the amen as you search diligently for employment. Live the amen as your heart is with your family that is serving in war. Live the amen when you're waiting on the results of that biopsy. How can you have this confidence? It's simple because God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You know, when I was a little boy, I would dream and daydream of having the power to fly. See, we used to live in the shadow of what was called Hang Glider Hill. It's a large hill right behind my house, and the hang gliders would take off there, off of there, and they would soar for hours, and I would lay on the lawn on my back and just watch. Hawks, turkey buzzards gliding on those thermal drafts. It was mesmerizing, but friends, listen, birds can fly amazingly well but they need two wings. When one of those wings is injured, they are grounded immediately. This is the way prayer and praise works together. You want to know why your prayer life is sputtering? Because you don't know yet how to live the amen. You don't know the doxology in your heart that God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So it's a time for you to go back to the basics and learn how to pray. So the time to live out the amen in your life and let praise inhabit your mouth, affirming the promises of God in Christ. Are you tired of being grounded in your prayer life? Jesus Christ has provided everything we need for a powerful, satisfying, joy-filled prayer life in this chapter alone. It's time that we learn to live the amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, it is enough. It's more than enough. Lord, it reveals who you are. It reveals the redemptive history that you have made clear throughout the dawn of civilization. Lord, thank you that you are redeeming people through Christ to be a people of your own. You're using us 
to declare that message fearlessly, to live it out confidently, so that people would be able to see the people of God and see a snapshot of glory. Because we live out your qualities. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to live with the it is so, the certainty that all of your promises have been fulfilled. They have been signed, sealed, and delivered to us through Jesus Christ. And may that give us a boldness and a confidence, Lord, to live for you and to recognize with praise the greatest doxology that yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And in your name we pray, amen.